Welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Ani Mirasol, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, who will be discussing their practice in an area of specialty, healing complex trauma and chronic shame through sex and BDSM. Welcome to the show, Ani. Thanks, Noah. I'm glad to be here. Super it's excited good to have for you. our chat. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, so uh, what are your credentials and experience? I'm a licensed clinical social worker, as you said. I have a master's of science in clinical social work from UT Austin and a bachelor's of science in sociology and gender studies from a school in central Illinois, which is where I'm from. I graduated with my master's in 2010. Um, and then I began working in nonprofit for a little bit, which we're gonna, I'll get to a little bit later, um, and worked with high-risk tweens and teens there that were involved in foster care and juvenile justice, um, and then later decided to pursue my LCSW. And my post-grad clinical training was in a large hospital setting where I worked in inpatient, intensive outpatient, and outpatient levels of care with both teens and adults. Cool. So your practice, does it have a name or is it just your name? Uh, both. <laughs> it has okay. a name called Rooted Rising. However, my website is under my name, animarisol.com. So a little bit of both. Okay. At your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do not accept insurance. And it was a tough decision for me to make um, because many people can't afford private pay therapy. And I was one of those people for many, many years. And I remember the struggle to find a good quality therapist who had the training I needed and the expertise I needed, but that I could afford. Um, so it was really difficult for me, but I ultimately decided to go with a cash pay practice. One reason is because I had worked in other agencies and hospitals that were insurance-based and saw people's care get terminated prematurely when they were not ready um, to be terminated yet. And that 
really was disheartening and frustrating. And I also believe in people's right to privacy. And I have some personal feelings about how medical data can be used against you. And especially in something as, as private and delicate as psychotherapy. Um, but I do allow the opportunity for folks to submit to, re to insurance for reimbursement if that's something they would like. And that is something that some folks choose to do. I like giving clients the options to do what works best for them. Do you have a sliding scale? I do hold reduced fee slots. Those are full right now. They tend to fill up really quickly. But based on my overall caseload, I um, hold a few select spots. And it's sort of first come, first serve, honest, honest, uh, no, honor policy or honesty policy. Okay. And so what does that sliding scale look like? Is it just kind of like a, the client will say, hey, I can pay this much or do you have different tiers? Yes, that's a great question. Um, I work with each person individually to see what is a range that works for them. So that could look like right now I have someone who is on a sliding scale of $40 up to someone else who's on a sliding scale of 120. So it just really ranges. I don't have any formalized tiers or paperwork or anything like that. I really work with the individual client. Yeah. I also find that another thing that happens sometimes is somebody could come in as a full fee client and then has a job loss or a medical emergency mm -hmm. or a family emergency. And that's another time that I'll work with clients that I don't want them to terminate treatment because of a an emergency that's happening. And so I might work with them to find some sort of fee that is agreeable to the both of us that we can do on a short term. Okay. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? I do. When I first started out, I worked lots of weekends and evenings, but as time went on, I started to get burnt out and needed to cut back. So now I work Monday through Friday and uh, it's different. I work until eight one night and then most other nights I end at five or 6 p.m. Okay. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Well, yes. Yes and no. Um, so I had thought I was going to work in nonprofit. So when I went into social work, I had the idea that I would do therapy light, maybe like therapeutic type work, but via a nonprofit. I didn't mm -hmm. see myself doing one-on-one -on -one therapy and I did not see myself being a private practice therapist. Um, but in nonprofit, I, I've done a lot of different work that I ultimately realized was social work when I was working with displaced families in Louisiana after Katrina or after Hurricane Katrina. And I worked at the United Way of Central Illinois around issues of hunger and homelessness, and then locally worked with different youth empowerment organizations and in schools with those um, teens and kiddos in juvenile justice and foster care. So whenever someone asks if therapy was my first career, it feels like a yes and no. Everything yeah. that I have done has been rooted around social justice. Um, it just at some point, as I started moving up in nonprofit, I really missed the direct work. And so as I became a senior program manager, now I was managing grants and spreadsheets and not people, which yeah. at the time was what I thought I wanted. Um, but as I moved up, realized I desperately do not want to do this. And that's when I decided to pursue my clinical licensure and then start doing more therapy work. What ultimately drew you to being a therapist other than an avoidance to spreadsheets? <laughs> <laughs> the avoidance to spreadsheets is real. I still hate them. Um, 
Man, so it's a it's a big question. And I think like many of us who come into this field, we came into it because of our own experiences, either in our personal life or our friends or families. So I, like a lot of folks I know, really was a therapist long before I ever knew what one was. My family has a long history of intergenerational trauma and addiction and poverty. And both of my parents had really rough childhoods. And as a result, they didn't know how to parent. And unfortunately, they also didn't have the resources or the knowledge or ability to really work on themselves. So they repeated a lot of those patterns of dysfunction that they grew up with. So I learned one of the ways of getting my needs met was to be able to read people and infer or anticipate their needs and caretake. I was a, a, an excellent little parentified child. Um, and everyone thought I was so mature for my age, which was so great. I was counseling like little friends in the playground in elementary school. And then in middle school, I wrote my eighth grade big research project on dream interpretation, which I didn't didn't later didn't know until much later, like, oh, wow, there was a little clue to what I might do later. So I don't know, it was just what I, I fell into in high school I was reading psych textbooks for fun, because that's the kind of kid I was in high school. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I was too. I took Yay! my first college I took my first college psychology course when I was 15 years old. Um, I was like all over it. It was all I read, everything I was interested in. Yes. Totally. I'm right there with you. My school did not have, I went to a real, I was in a, born in a really small rural town in, in Illinois and we did not have psychology classes in high school or I was not taking college level classes either. <laughs> so I really, I'm, I'm so excited when other kids now are talking about being in psychology and sociology classes in high school. Cause that was just like, not at all the opportunities that were available to me at that time. Yeah. Luckily yeah. My, my high school had um, like concurrent enrollment classes. Although this wasn't one they offered directly through the school. I took I took this class in the summer on my own time as a 15-year-old. <laughs> you are such a badass. We would have so been friends. Oh, we would I have agree. been geeking out over all of the psych <laughs> stuff. <laughs> that would have been so fun. It would have been really nice to have had somebody who was equally as interested. Yeah, um, I agree. So tell us a little more about yourself, hobbies, interests, TV shows, music, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I have three fur babies. They're the most important thing in my life. Their names are Stanley, Charles, and Chewy. And together, the three of them weigh like 35 pounds. So they're all little <laughs> small fur balls. And they keep me very loved and busy. I like playing around with arts and craftsy type stuff. I really want to be an artist. And I believe anyone can be. So I'm just going to say I am an artist but I'm definitely an artist in training and in practice. So I play around with paint and cross stitch and I'm working out some space in my garage right now. Cause I want to learn how to do some woodworking. So Ooh. yeah, I want to build my own shit. That just sounds really cool to me. That does sound cool. I've always wanted to whittle. Yes. Yes. Whittling sounds fun too. <laughs> I've been meaning actually to buy a kit on Amazon. I just have been putting it off. I don't know why. Um, I think you can do it. Well, you know, whatever you learn woodworking, I would love if you imparted your knowledge because that's something I've always been interested in as well. Great. If I learn something, I'll share it with you. I, I actually took a, 
a semester of welding at ACC. <laughs> that sounds so fun, ago. though. It, it was really fun. I actually, I was at a point where I was like, you know what? I'm never going to, like, make any money. Like, I'm never going to be able to afford rent independently in Austin. So I might as well go to welding school where I can make six figures. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, and then, you know, midway through, I was like, you know, this isn't for me. It's a little more math than I anticipated. And, you know, I miss people. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I have a, a really cool little statue in my office that I welded. Um the welding for me was more so like I really wanted to do more like art welding. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if I hadn't enjoyed it, I wouldn't have minded doing the. I, I just love manual labor and like yeah. hard physical work. I'm just such a fan of that stuff. I miss that. I miss that. Being physical more often. We do so much sitting and my body mm-hmm. just, oh, please move. Yes, I feel you on that. <laughs> totally. I- um so my, in your, hold on hold ahead. on I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about myself <laughs> please do um my let's see what else did you had asked um music that I'm listening to okay my music tastes are very eclectic and I'm a fan of hip-hop to bluegrass uh, a lot of indie folk indie rock folk rock I'm a huge fan of Beyonce and recently won first place in a Beyonce themed Greek geeks who drink trivia contest. That's very amazing. proud. Thank you. Thank you. It's very hard work. <laughs> and I really, really miss Austin's local music scene and going to shows at the continental club or the Saxon pub or oh, um, body rock that. night at Sahara lounge. I just, yeah, really miss that. And then I'm not much of a movie fan. I do watch TV shows and binge watch them like the rest of us. I'm a big Parks and Rec fan. I'm cruising through Grace and Frankie right now. I like stand-up. And then I have a, a horrible guilty, well, it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's just a pleasure um, <laughs> where I like horrible, trashy reality TV shows and also the TV show 911 Lone Star, which is not really <laughs> great, but it it's funny. It makes it makes me happy. Yeah. So are we talking about like 90 day fiance type shows? Yeah, something yeah, something like that. That would okay. work. Also, um, Alone, Things in the Wilderness. Oh, Alone is such a badass show. I love yes. that show. Love it. And I love the I love psychological thrillers and like I'm just like the rest of us who like the murder mystery fanatic thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for adding that. Um, So in your clinical work, what modalities do you tend to draw upon? I have a very eclectic approach, which I think lots of therapists will say if you ask them what modalities. Often we say things like I'm eclectic and no one person is the same. So no one treatment is the same. I really truly believe that. Um, so I really tailor each approach to the individual and their own needs and strengths and areas of growth that they're looking at. I would say overall, I'm oriented to a mind body spirit connection that's rooted um, in feminist relational theories, um, trauma and yes. sex positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm also extensively trained in psychodynamic theory um, and systems theory, which just means basically I have a keen eye for assessing 
our, how our environment shaped our thoughts and feelings and behaviors, everything from our families to our teachers, to schools, universities, media, politics, all of it, how that all influences us. And then um, more specifically, I was trained in dialectical behavior therapy when I worked in the hospital setting. And that is an excellent modality for working with complex trauma and emotional neglect. And I really, I don't use that, I don't subscribe 100% to the full model. So, so they may say I would not be in compliance with the full model, but I use it as a guiding framework to help clients mm -hmm. increase their own awareness, regulate emotions, manage their painful feelings, communicate with others. And then like a lot of us, I've trained in various different approaches over the years or taken different training. So I also pull from acceptance and commitment therapy, um, interpersonal neurobiology and attachment theory. So like I said, it's eclectic. And I'm a huge group therapy nerd. Um, and I'm currently enrolled in a three-year training program out of New York to increase my skills and abilities in group therapy. And this year I've launched a group therapy program where I'm running a series of groups around overcoming shame and trauma and anxiety. It is called Fuck Shame because that is the most direct title I could think of. And it feels very timely to what a lot love of us it. have been going through. Thank you. Thanks. I love it too. Um, first group just started a few weeks ago. The next one's coming up next week. So it's been really fun to do those groups. And that's another thing I do a lot of and love. Are you still accepting new members for those for that group? Yes, I am. Fantastic. Um, and where could somebody find more information about that? Would that be on your website? Yep, it's on my website, www.animirasol.com uh, backslash fuck shame group. Or if you just go to my website, it's right at the top. You'll see it. Cool, cool. So, you know, today we're talking about healing complex trauma and chronic shame through sex and BDSM. I think in order to uh, talk about this topic, we need to first operationally define what these things mean, right? Yep. So let's start with complex trauma. Can you give our listeners uh, an idea of what that is? Yeah. Complex trauma is a trauma that has been going on for a long period of time or over a long duration of time. It's Similar and different from post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think we are more familiar with PTSD, especially as how it relates to veterans. Mm -hmm. And complex trauma is not, not one traumatic event, but a series of ongoing traumatic events over a long period of time. So this is often, most frequently, is some sort of ongoing childhood trauma or neglect. Um, and that may have not been purposeful. It could look like um, an absent parent who was working a lot to provide. It could look like a, a parent who was gone a lot because they had a very important executive job. Um, so it doesn't mean that someone necessarily had this overt abuse or neglect in their childhood. But if there was a persistent ongoing lack of emotional connection or of a parent who could tune into you, that is going to um, create some difficulties as we develop over time. So I think that's probably the best way of how I can complain or how I can complain, how I can operationalize complex trauma. Okay. And uh, what about shame? You know, I know a lot of people really confuse guilt and shame. Um, how would you 
how would you define shame and how would you say it differs from guilt? Yes, I love this question and I love the distinction because I think the distinction is so important that what we often feel is shame um, could really just be guilt. So the difference between the two, guilt is I did something that I, I did something that was against the prescribed uh, norms or expectations. Like guilt was I did a thing bad. I feel bad for doing said thing. Shame is I did bad thing, therefore I am bad person. And guilt is more about a behavior and an action. If you have guilt over an action you did, you can change it. That guilt can be very motivating to keep us kind of in line with doing things that feel good to us. Shame um, really can do the opposite. Shame makes us feel worse about ourselves and can lead us to even... Um, treating other people crappy or definitely treating ourselves crappy. Shame says things like, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm too much. I don't deserve. I shouldn't take up space. Lots of, um, as I say to my clients, shoulding on yourself around that shame piece. And Brene Brown is really the big known shame person. So there's lots of stuff she's written and talked about that's around shame, but I just come back fundamentally to the idea of it being rather than something you did, it's something that you are. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I think everybody knows what sex is, but um... <laughs> I wouldn't be <laughs> I so sure, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> there's not great sex ed across this country. <laughs> you know, that's true. And, you know, I think that it, a lot of people don't know or understand sex outside of heterosexuality. Absolutely. Um, yep. You know, I think that's where the big lack of understanding and knowledge comes in regarding that. Mm -hmm. um, sex is not solely penis and vagina. Right. Um, not, and also between hetero couples, that that is not the only form of sex. That right. Sex is a, an intimate connection really between minds and genitals get involved or our pleasure parts come up, sometimes literally. But <laughs> <laughs> it's much more about a, um, an, an intimate connection with another person that can be expressed physically or emotionally through touch. Um, sometimes there's hands and mouths involved, but that doesn't have to be the only way that sex looks. And I think it's just important to normalize that for folks. That also applies to folks with um, different abilities, folks with different body needs. Yeah. Um, sex is just going to look very different and personal to each individual. Mm -hmm. And what about BDSM for those of our listeners who maybe have heard the term but don't really understand or know what it means. Um, could mm -hmm. you, you give us some more information on that? Oh, I sure can. So <laughs> I'll just break down the letters first as a starting place. So B and D stand for bondage and discipline. The D S in the middle has a, the D gets used twice. So does the S um, is dominance and submission and the S and the M is sadism and masochism. So whether you like to receive pain or give pain. And lots of people get kind of caught up in this idea of pain. Like, how can somebody experience pain 
uh, and, and find that pleasurable. Like we have this idea that pain and pleasure are diametrically opposed. And I, I think that is not at all accurate. Um, lots of people do things or enjoy things that are painful. Um, I am not a person who enjoys spicy food, but I know there are people who will like burn the taste buds off their tongue because mm -hmm. they enjoy spicy food. So there's a link there between pain and pleasure. Um, the same with contact sports, um, you know, something like rugby or boxing or roller derby. There's, there's pain involved in those sports. Um, and there's aftercare that people who participate have to do to take care of themselves. So that is the same, that applies also to BDSM, that there may be pain, which is a maybe, it's not the only type of play, um, but the pleasure of playing or being connected with someone will supersede that initial pain. Um, moving out of the pain aspect, something like humiliation is something that people can play with sexually. And again, like, why would you want to be humiliated? But I think about just because you have a feeling of humiliation or humiliated or embarrassment or fear doesn't mean you are being humiliated. So another great example, plenty of people get up and give speeches despite trembling and fear and feeling embarrassed and red faced, but the rush of endorphins we get activate some of our dopamine neurons and then it feels good. So people often talk about getting a runner's high or the rush of getting on stage and performing. That is very similar to what folks experience when they're playing with BDSM or playing in a scene or with a partner. And there is a ton of neurobiological and, and physiological reasons for these responses. And there's also not a ton of research. You, as you might imagine, like the government and biomedical Agencies are not really beating down the door to invest in BDSM research, um, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so I think there's probably a lot we don't technically know, but a lot that we can deduce from how we know our bodies respond to pain and stimuli. It was a and long you know, <laughs> No, that was a good answer. While you were discussing this, um, two words came up that I know that most people probably aren't familiar with, um, or at least terminology as it relates to this. You use the word play and scene. Um, yes. Can you speak a little more to each of those? Yes, absolutely. So remember when we were little kids um, and you would have a friend who would come over, or maybe you'd go over to their house and you'd knock on the door and you'd say, oh, could so-and-so come out and play? I don't know, maybe you didn't do that. I know kids, I don't know if kids do that anymore. But that, um, that term of play is very similar to the sort of childlike play that we had. Um, that you find a partner that is someone you're interested in interacting with. And you all might have a relationship um, that's romantic. You might have a long-term relationship. You might not even, you could be strangers and decide, hey, we both have some similar interests. Do you like playing house? I like playing house. Great, let's play house. Who's going to be the parent? Who's going to play the child? Um, or, hey, let's play cops and robbers. Who's going to be the cop? Who's going to be the robber? Right? So we did this sort of play as children very naturally. Somewhere and along the lines. And assumed roles, yes. And if you think back into your childhood, there may be some things that there about um, your personality and what you lean towards. Did you always want to be the parent in charge? 
you might be someone who enjoys leading scenes or being the dom or the top. Did you always enjoy being more on the passive side? You may enjoy more of being a bottom or a submissive. So I know I'm talking about childhood play and I wanna be very clear that this is not sexual childhood play. I'm just talking about the concept of play that somewhere along the line, we, we, uh, we lots of adults lose touch with their ability and creativity around playing. Um, we often don't get together with adults and say, oh, let's play. Do you wanna play house? Do you wanna play pretend? What do you wanna play? Um, you might, if you play Dungeons and Dragons or you're in RPG yeah. worlds, right? You might have that. Um, but I think a lot of people lose touch with playing. And so BDSM is a way to connect back to a sense of play, a sense of lightheartedness, a sense of fun, um, and also a sense of altered consciousness in a, in a way that you get to try on different roles in the world that may be scary or um, intriguing, but you're really nervous about. So I think it's just a cool way that you get to play with personalities and roles and characteristics of yourself. I don't know, that maybe otherwise stay hidden. Mm -hmm. So that's play. And then a scene is, is um, a negotiated play session. Um, it's sometimes called scening is, hey, you and I, we met each other, we both are interested in similar things, um, and then we negotiate some sort of scene. And again, we relationally negotiate scenes, in quotes, all the time, but it might look like, hey, we're going to have um, a date, where are we going to go? And so we're negotiating a scene in a loose word, in a loose way of where are we going to go to have our, our playtime? How are we going to do this? What are the expectations? When, what time, how long will you pick me up? Will, will, will I go to you? Right. We negotiate these sorts of things all the time. And so a scene is just a negotiated prearranged opportunity for two or more consenting adults to play and an act out a fantasy or a scene or a, a story that um, is enjoyable to them. And that and, may and or that, may not lead to orgasm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's important to, to say as well. And I also think um, it's important to mention that uh, that's where consent is gained, you know, yes. in, that, in that process. Um, Absolutely. BDSM is all about consent. There's a lot of misconceptions. Yes, and I think that's why it's so good for folks who've had uh, experienced complex trauma, especially yes. because it is so, it has a structure. If you grew up with things that were unpredictable and chaotic, going into a healthy BDSM community or scene or play party is very um, predictable. There are folks there that you go to for help. Um, it's just can be a really reparative experience for a child who was often very alone and left to their own devices. This is, can be a whole community that can help hold you as you explore pieces of yourself. And it can be so beautiful, but the consent is so key and important. Um, I think a lot of people think BDSM relationships are just unhealthy or dysfunctional or abusive. And, you know, sure, like any relationship, they could be those things but they are not inherently. Um, and BDSM play could be the entire relationship, but often is only a single part of a relationship. It's often not the entire relationship. Um, and the other thing too, I think the dominance get, 
doms or dominant folks in the scene get there's a lot of misconceptions about them that they're abusive that they're pseudo rapists they're power hungry they're predators um and again like any human that can be true however um dominants are not inherently bad people in real life they can be shy and timid and gentle and introverted you may be so surprised to know someone who's pretty quiet and shy normally you know, on the weekends has this very strong, stern side to them. And that just allows them to play with different pieces of themselves. Same thing Mm -hmm. with submissives. It doesn't mean you want to be treated like a doormat. It doesn't mean someone gets to come up to you in a public place and tell you to get on your knees and you're supposed to do that. Um, that, That's not good, healthy BDSM. So it's all founded on the consent and the negotiation. It's about fantasy, pretend play, And then afterwards, just like a marathon runner, there's a post-scene process called aftercare. And that's where that top and bottom or that dub and dom and sub um, take some time to reconnect. It looks different for everyone, but it often has soft blankets and waters and snacks. Um, Similar to completing a long run, your body's coming off of an endorphin rush and needs to rest and recover. It also just helps with the reconnection afterwards um, for the the top to say, are you okay? Let's reconnect and sort of know they didn't harm their bottom. And also time for the submissive to get reconnected. Hey, you really don't think these things about me. If, if there's any processing that needs to happen afterwards, that's really when that happens. And again, I love the structure. There's a structured negotiation before. There's an engaged scene that you can stop at any moment. And then there's an aftercare process. And it reminds me so much of trauma treatment. That in the beginning, we work on safety and stabilization. Then we have this whole skills building, rebuilding uh, trauma work piece. And then we have this sort of aftercare piece of reconnection and going back out into the world. So it just makes sense in my brain. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense to me. Um, You know, there are so many types of BDSM relationships and you've named a few of them um in working with trauma are there certain or specific dynamics that you have seen that tend to be more helpful for trauma than others or is that just person independent i that is so person independent so the first thing that comes to mind is something like age play And age play can be very controversial. People have very strong reactions about it. Um, And even within the BDSM scene, it can be, um, can be a kink that can be judged. Um, And age play is something where someone pretends to regress to a younger age state. It does not mean they are young. It just means they're playing in a space of younger like a younger state, an altered state. Um, So something like age play could be incredibly healing for someone because in an age play scene, there's a caregiver, there's a care receiver. If you, either side, if you've experienced trauma, the ability to be able to care give to someone else, a reparative experience of healthy attachment and healing is beautiful. To be on the, the the care receiver side, also gives you an opportunity to have a very different attachment, a felt sense of connection in your body, 
um, and can be very healing. Now, the flip side is also true that there are some trauma survivors who experienced sexual trauma in, in their childhood who this would be way, way, way too regressive for them, way too stimulating, um, would not be good for them. And so it really truly is an exploration for someone who wants to get into BDSM or explore kinks and fetishes. It's an explorative process and it just requires some open, um, open dialogue and processing and connection to the person you're playing with. But I, I don't really, I don't know, I'd have to think about it, but there's not something that comes to mind that's like a stark no. It's mm -hmm. so person dependent. Okay. Would an example of age play be like a DDLG relationship or dynamic? Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, like a, a daddy dom and a little girl. So that is one opportunity or there's um, mommy doms and little boys or mommy doms and little girls or whatever. There's lots of opportunities. So yeah, it could be something like that. And that language, someone may enjoy age play and not enjoy that language. So they may find other words that work for them instead of daddy. It might be sir or um, my king. It could be some other term of endearment. Um, and instead of baby girl, um, or my little, it could be something like my, my queen, my princess, um, you know, it can, you can pick language that works better for you. If something doesn't, that's another thing I love about it is if something doesn't work for you, just change it. Mm -hmm. It's flexible. There's not, there's rules, but there aren't, you know, there's structure, mm -hmm. but you get lots of space to explore. What do you think is the most important thing to impart to our listeners about the use of sex and BDSM for complex trauma and chronic shame? Yes. So the, the big, the big point, so point one um, is that this is an opportunity for anyone to do some healing work. Um, I want folks to know that if they were interested in exploring um, pieces of themselves that are connected to um, shame, especially around sexual shame, um, folks who grew up in strict religions also often experience some sexual shame. I want folks to know that this is a way for them to have a safe-ish, safe enough container to explore themselves and their sexuality, that this can be a place for if you really struggle to stay in your body or to stay connected to your body, this could be a place where you can get a felt sense of what it is like to be in your body again. And you may have been disconnected from your body for years. And this could be a way to release some of that old pent up stress. Like it completes the stress cycle. Um, and I think it's also an opportunity for connection in community, that a healthy community, a healthy BDSM community can be like a family that helps nourish you and support you and watch you grow. Um, and I think that that's just so important to help rewrite some of those stories and narratives in our mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives you a chance to move out of the old story of um, I'm not in control or people hurt me to 
I am in control of my body. I choose what happens to me. Um, I can say no. I can change my mind at any point. I can feel pleasure. Um, and so I just want folks to know that this can be a really safe, contained way to explore parts of themselves that they keep hidden. And sex is just good and healthy. And yeah. so is play. And whether you um, play through BDSM and kink or you play through RPGs or you play on a softball league, just having play in your life is very important. And this is one way that you can get play and pleasure. And, you know, like in thinking about it, it feels like, I mean, through play, that's how we access our inner child, right? Right. Yep. Yeah, there so, can be a lot of inner child work. Mm-hmm. Sort of indirect. Um, but these, you know, thinking of um, if, you, if you were, you had access to play and fun and creativity, often a, a traumatic event can, can stop the access we have to creativity and can stunt the access we have um, to all to parts of our brain that maybe were confused um, or like parts of our brain that sex was scary. So now sex isn't pleasurable or sex was forced. And so now it's again, avoidable. Um, and this really helps us get back to a time in our life where we were freer, where we were imaginative, um, where we weren't so caught up in society messages and expectations. And we were just freer to be silly and weird yeah. and, you know, make weird jokes and sounds. We weren't so uptight <laughs> about our bodies. Yeah. So it's a great way to kind of reconnect with uh, those inner child parts. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with um, like sexual surrogacy at all? Um, with the, yes. <laughs> um, can you tell our listeners what that is mm-hmm. and, how it's used. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, just a little bit about that. Yeah, a sex surrogate is someone who is um, maybe uh, maybe similar to a coach-ish, um, but it's a, a person that you hire. It's a form could be a form of sex work, but it's a person that um, you hire to consensually practice or engage in some acts of intimacy um, that doesn't that can but doesn't necessarily mean um, penetrative experiences, but just someone that could help you. Um, I think we're getting more familiar maybe with the idea of like cuddle parties. So cuddle parties are a thing where uh, a group of friends might get together and they just have a cuddle puddle where people just hug. It's not, uh, it's not sexual, but it's physical contact and touch. And we need, as humans, we need people, we need contact, we need touch. And um, as we've moved more to like single family housing and living alone, lots of us don't get as much human contact. So this is an opportunity to um, kind of source out, outsource um, in a safe enough place to practice and try on uh, some, of your, some of your skills. So say there's somebody listening to this podcast and they're like, you know what? I'm kind of interested in exploring BDSM. Where would they start? Oh, good, good question. 
Well, for the initial curious, like a super initial baby starting curious person, I might even just direct them to reading some erotica first. Just see what is appealing to you. See if you um, read something that's really stimulating to you, like just sounds super fun. Or watch, um, you might watch something pornographic. You might, uh, you might just watch something, I don't know, you might watch something else. But I think the initial places of start are just learning more information. I would never advise someone who is just curious to just go to a party or go to a club. I think you definitely need to have some more intros to that. There um, are lists of fetishes online that you could all, so many people are like, what? I didn't even know that was a thing. So even just learning, what are the things out there that you can do? And then there are these um, surveys, I guess that's a, a word, is it a sex survey? or a sexual willingness scale um, where there's several of these where they have different scene or different um, sexual acts and you might go through them initially on your own and then eventually with a partner. And these, these will list all sorts of acts. Do you like this, doing this, receiving this? Um, do you like seeing this or, or being watched doing this? So it gives you an opportunity to just kind of go through and really start checking in with yourself and I think first there's just an initial, wait, what's that? Highlight that one. I don't know what that is. I have to go look that up. Or like yeah. this, I know I like <laughs> that. I know I like this. What the hell is that? Um, but that's a great place. And then FetLife is a website that is um, a big community for kinksters that are interested in exploring different kinks and fetishes and BDSM. And that can be a place to just sort of lurk around and poke around, read on some message boards, um, and even Reddit. Reddit has a BDSM community. You can go on Reddit and just read and learn more about what are people doing out there. If you really just don't even have an idea, I think those are great places to start. And then you want to be very careful about the first few partners, well, about every partner you pick, but I have definitely seen folks get ahead of themselves and get very excited and want so badly to jump into playing that they really don't vet partners in a very well uh, or a very good way and that they can end up hurt that way. So I think if once you're ready to move, you've, you've done some reading and research, you've went through your sexual willingness scale. Now you're looking for a play partner, much like, dating um you know you want to screen the people you might want to get references who have they played with in the past if they're not willing to, to give you references that's a problem yeah um anyone who's willing and, and kind of worth worth their word is going to know and understand and expect that you would be vetting someone um and that's on both sides that's whether you're the dominant or the top or whether you're the dismissive or the bottom you you want to know on both ends what is it like with this person how did that end so i just don't rush into anything right away um and the first time you play okay i, I hesitate because what i want to say is the first time you play um that it, I, I want folks to make sure that they're doing it in the safest way possible. So what I want to say is play first at a party, but mm -hmm. I don't think that that's accurate for everyone. Um, but I do want folks to be very 
very aware of what they're doing when they're, if they're inviting someone over to their house or they're going to someone's house with the understanding that they're going to be tied up or blindfolded or handcuffed, that if you don't know someone, it, it would be not advised for you to jump into just going to their house and being um, tied up. So yeah. get information, build a relationship, establish rapport. Um, and if, and if you are open to parties, I think getting involved in a local munch, which is a local group of kinky folks who gather at restaurants or bars or drink. Well, this was in the before times when we could gather. <laughs> now they gather online on Zoom like all of us. Uh, but a munch is another great place to get to know other fellow kinksters. And then you sort of get to know who's who. If there's someone with a bad rep, you'll usually find out about it. Someone will let you know. Um, and if not, if you meet someone, ask some of the other people at the munch. And again, a munch is something you can also find. Um, there's an Austin BDSM calendar of events, and you can also find munches on FetLife where groups are meeting up. Awesome. Awesome. Um, what are your thoughts about... Maybe this is a silly question. I'll ask it anyway. What do you think about the intersections of neurodiversity in BDSM? Oh, that is a wonderful question. I don't know research, but I can just talk for what I see and experience. And prefacing that with most of my clients are neurodiverse. So that could mean something from being on the autism spectrum to ADHD to being a highly sensitive person or an empath, um, just someone whose brain seems, I think the word neuro, neurodivergent so weird too, like divergent from who? From what? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, aren't we all neurologically different? Um, but I think, I feel like from what I see and experience that there is such a connection between neurodivergence and the ability to role play that I don't know what it is. Um, if it's a, if it's a creativity, if it's just a, a certain way of wiring that gives you more access to that or more freedom to be a weirdo, I don't know exactly what it is, but I do see an overlap between those communities. Um, yeah, I don't, do you, what do you think? I think I think it's just uh, I think it's related to sensory stuff. Oh, good one. I think that is spot on. Yep. And you know how people's like, you know, pleasure pain sometimes can get mixed yeah. up and, you know, sometimes people need more stimulation or, you know, less stimulation and Yes. Um, I love that because, I, you know, a, a BDSM scene could involve one single feather. Right. That it doesn't have to be whips and chains and handcuffs. It can be, but it can be two people or at least one person in normal clothes, one person partially clothed and a feather. And mm -hmm. as long as your mind knows something about the human body and the human experiences, you can have a very connected, pleasurable experience that is not sex, 
um, that may or may not end up with orgasm, but is a full on sensory experience. I think you're really on to, I think that's right. I like that. Hot and cold. There's so much mm -hmm. sensory stimulation, either input or restriction mm -hmm. involved. Yeah. I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have lots of theories about lots of things. Excellent. <laughs> So talk to us a little bit about, like, you know, say somebody is working with you and they have been struggling with uh, chronic shame. How might you assist them? Like, and they express an interest in BDSM. Um, mm -hmm. How might you assist them in, in that process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we would move. That's a good question. Would We would move very slowly, um, just sort of as an overarching initial, um, that one of the things that can be helpful with chronic shame is, um, is exposure therapy. So doing um, controlled, pre-planned exposures to certain stimuli that... Um, really activate you or overwhelm you. So if there is someone, and I'm in my head, there's such a range of what chronic shame can look like. I mean, it can look like I struggle to leave my house because I'm so afraid of how the world will see me to, eh, it's just a thing that's running inside, but it doesn't stop me from really living my life. So there's a whole range there, but I think we would start um, We'd start with a lot of talking about what are they interested in? Why are they interested in it? What is appealing? Um, what would they like to get? We would talk together about some of those things that I suggested. Sometimes I'll send someone with a sexual inventory home to go through and get ideas and then, you know, to come back and we'll either talk about it um, either very directly, like, what is this thing, Ani? Tell me what this means. Or depending on the person, they may they may hold it a little more private and that's okay too. But we'd start with just getting some more awareness, increasing that awareness, and then probably moving into little exposures that will help them build the resiliency that they might need to step into a new environment like this. And again, this is, can be coupled with social anxiety. You know, how, how much does the shame and anxiety control their life? Um, but my goal would be to get someone at least to a munch, because mm -hmm. shame really, really breeds in isolation, that when we are alone, I think that's when our shame monsters really get loud. When we get around other people, that's when we start talking to other people, and the, the shame monster sort of gets squashed. We kind of talk to other people and realize, oh, well, hey, I'm not so alone with this, or oh, you do that thing too, and I don't think that you're a weirdo, or bad, or mm -hmm. what a fill in the blank. So, my goal would be to get them in more of uh, involved more with some community and start forming those connections. And then we'd see what happened from there. You know, we might be talking about um, either dating or getting them to a, a play party. Um, but it would be a slow process with various steps along the ways with some exposures to get them there. Cool. I like that a lot. Um, is there anything I haven't asked about, um, complex healing, complex trauma, and chronic shame through sex and BDSM 
that you think is important to discuss? Yes, where I have something. Um, well, I really just, if I, I think I've talked about these, but as I was planning for this, um, this interview, I really was trying to pare down and think about what do I really want to convey? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the main takeaways that I want folks to leave with are that one BDSM um, pro- provides a safe, predictable container for exploration that um, within that predictability that that in and of itself is calming and healing to our nervous system. And the second point that is that the BDSM and the kink play can help us to complete the stress cycle. So that helps us release pent up energy. This movement, whether that's a physical or emotional movement and expression is very healing. Um, And it helps us release energy that doesn't serve us anymore and access new energy that might be more generative for us. Um, And the other part is really about, I know I did talk about this, connecting with our felt sense of learning what is it like to be in my body again and also learning how to name what's happening in my body out loud so my partner knows. Um, That feels like a, a big piece of growth work for a lot of folks who've been so disconnected. And the final piece is about how this helps our attachment, that in the process of a a BDSM play scene or arrangement, that both partners are uh, usually only focused on that moment and or each other. So it can be this really cool way of experiencing what it is like either to tune into someone that intensely or to be tuned into that intensely creates a healing attachment uh, or can create a healing and att- uh, repairing some attachment wounds. Um, it's different than someone, I don't know, I think a lot of us have had experiences of people not being tuned into us or sort of missing what we want to need. And what I love about this is there's so much focus on continued con- contact, continued checking in that. Uh, it really does give our whole body and nervous system and brain just a new experience to try to process. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I think just the, just feeling seen, you know, can be so healing in and of itself. I mean, especially when we talk, I mean, of course I'm going to bring this up, but especially when we talk about trans and non-binary folks, for example, right? Absolutely. Um, and there is so much shame that people struggle with as a result of their gender and, you know, sexualities as well. But, um, you know, I, I could see this being really beneficial in a variety of ways for um, a lot of folks. Absolutely. And, and if you find a good community... Um, it, it just can feel like like coming home, and if you find those places in those spaces, I think the the potential for healing is just mind blowing, and particularly for marginalized bodies. Um, but just are having there, a place, yeah. Are there any particular local communities for queer folks um, regarding like the BDSM kink community? There are, and I don't. I don't have 
Um, I would have to get the, I would have to look at the names to be sure that I wasn't butchering it. There are, okay. I think, um, Ravish is one, I think that's mostly for lesbian. I'd have to look at their names. There are them, but I don't remember exactly what they're called. Can you email those to me? Yeah. Um, and yep. I'll include them in the show notes. Yep. Cool. Cause I think there's a lot of people out there who have been looking for that sort of community. Um, but you know, if you don't know, it's hard to find. Totally. Yeah. I know there's, um, like a, a uh, yeah, I'll look, I'll, I'll find them and email them to you. Cool. Cool. Um, was there anything else that you had wanted to say about that? All this is no. fucking, fucking fantastic stuff on Is it good? Good. I'm excited. I know. I'm just like, what else? What else? I can keep talking. Um, <laughs> I think, I think that that's probably good. Okay. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit to more um, about you as a practitioner. Um, well, first, let me ask this question. You, you kind of talked a little bit earlier about um, some people's like misconceptions. Are there any other common misconceptions you would like to note about complex trauma, chronic shame, or BDSM, or the combination? Yes. Um, yeah, there is a misconception about, um, well, this may sound a little off, but it'll circle back. There is a big misconception about, I believe, um, borderline personality disorder. Uh, when I worked in the hospital and learned DBT, it was originally for the treatment of borderline personality disorder. And it's a wonderfully mm -hmm. effective tool. Yeah. And there is an incredible amount of overlap between folks who experience complex trauma, chronic neglect, um, or other abusive situations growing up. And there's a lot of talk and questioning of, is borderline personality disorder really a personality disorder, or is this a response to having lived your life traumatized or as a, a marginalized person? Um, so I do think that complex trauma is misunderstood, that the ways people behave and act might look, um, I don't want to say crazy, they might look irrational mm -hmm. to outside folks, but they were at one point an adaptive and normal response to a fucked up situation. Right. So I really, this was another reason of why I didn't like insurance. I don't like the actual diagnostic requirements of our field yes. that I think so many things we call disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders are actually normal responses to stress and chaos. If you live in a marginalized body and your life is literally in danger every day, I think the most normal thing for you is to be very anxious and on high alert and to have Absolutely. social anxiety because you don't know who you can trust. So I think folks get clumped into categories and labels um, that, uh, that I sometimes are helpful, but often really don't match the situation. So that's one of the big ones that gets on my, under my skin about complex trauma and complex trauma is not technically a, an official medical diagnosis. Like it's not in the, the psychiatry Bible, the DSM-5. Um, and so sometimes that makes people dismiss it as if it's not a real thing. And that's very harmful and damaging as well. Um, I think any of the 
the misconce- uh, most of the misconceptions about BDSM, I feel like I've talked about already. Um, no, I think that's that. Okay, cool. Um, so going back again to switching back to you, yep. um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I have quite a bit of experience working with vulnerable populations. That's really been the bulk of my work. Um, I worked quite a bit with folks who were um, unhomed. I worked quite a bit with uh, kids who were undocumented and worked quite a bit with dreamers uh, before I went into more of the private practice therapy world. And then in my practice now, I work with non-binary, transgender, gender expansive folks. Um, And just in general, I work with folks, I would say almost everyone that I work with has some form of marginalized identity that has, um, that they've experienced oppression for in their life. And so that ranges from things we talked about, gender, um, documentation, race, but also sexuality, religion. Um, I work with pagans and Wiccans and, you know, I just work with a lot of folks, uh, folks in larger bodies, fat people, fat, fat folk like myself, um, as another group that I work quite a bit with. Um, so it's actually really, I don't have quite a bit of experience actually working with um, mainstream. I don't know if that's right. <laughs> How are your sessions structured, if any? My sessions are very fluid, uh, kind of going by like eclectic, like my style. My, flu- my sessions are very individualized. I really work with whatever that person is coming in with and needing that day. So most sessions will start with a general check-in and then, you know, kind of a, how are you, what's been going on, anything you want to update me on. And then really, what do you want to get out of the session today? So this, the way I work is really, I empower folks to be in charge of their own treatment, um, to ask me for what they want and need. Of course, I work with them to help them do that. I'm aware there's a power differential. Um, But if someone tells me today what I want to talk about and need to talk about is this certain thing that happened at work, like, okay, then that's what we need to talk about. If it's away from their therapy goals, I might come back later and say, how does this connect to your anxiety? Like I would kind of bring it back in because everything that we are going on, everything going on in our life is interconnected. So if you want to talk about work, but we're really working on your anxiety, I fully believe that you have anxiety at work. Um, And so that may be the access portal we use. Um, and then also I'll sometimes teach a particular skill or do a breathing exercise or help folks get in touch with body sensations. Um, but again, it really, every session, every session I do is going to look different. Okay, cool. Um, you know, a lot of people who are going to therapy, especially for the first time, um, may put off making an appointment because they don't know what to expect, you know, just even from an initial session. Um, could you give us a rundown of what your initial sessions look like? Yeah. Um, my initial sessions, I'm a pretty casual person. I'm very conversational. Um, my first sessions are not, I'm not dressed in a suit. I'm probably in like maybe some yoga leggings or something and a tunic. <laughs> 
uh, and we're like casual, we're, we're chilling on the couch or something. Um, and it's very conversational. Um, I'm going to ask, well, really when someone comes in, I usually give them two different options. So I say, often you already know what you're coming in for. Are you ready to just talk and get it out? Or are you someone who this is really nerve wracking and would you rather me ask you more directive questions? So that's how I start a first session is even to just sort of tell me how you want this to go. I know the information that I'm um, wanting to gather. I'm wanting to know about your, your work, your friends, your family, your life. Um, I have that in my head, but I don't do it like a formal interview. It's much more of a conversation. And that initial assessment is going to be over one to three sessions. That's what I always tell folks. It's sort of like, um, it's like dating that you're going to go on your initial coffee date, see if you guys like each other, and then you might go out for dinner. <laughs> and then that third date is often where you're like, what are we doing? Is this working out for us or not? Um, and so I think of it sort of like that. The first session is often very nerve wracking, just catching a lot of information. Second and third sessions, I'm starting to learn a little bit more about you and you're getting more of an idea of who I am. And then after that third session, I like to ask folks, how's this feeling? Does this feel like a good fit? Are you wanting to invest in working together long-term, short-term, and really get a sense of where they're at with that too? So I work very collaboratively with my clients. Cool. I'm not a suit person either. Wonderful. Lately, I'm a sweatpants person. <laughs> Isn't it great? It's lovely. <laughs> I know. Business on top, party on the bottom. <laughs> Love it. Um, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? <laughs> I want to now ask them all. Um, I, I think they were, I'm goofy. Um, I like to laugh a lot in our sessions. I'm playful. Um, I'm very lovingly direct. That's what I have been told that I have a pretty direct approach, but not cruel. So I'm an adult and you're an adult and I want someone to talk to, like, I'm going to talk to you like an adult um, and treat you like one and not, I'm not going to assume that sort of power difference. So I'm really like in the trenches with you. Um, I hope that folks would say that they really feel like I'm in the trenches with them. I definitely know that they would say that I'm goofy. <laughs> I like to have some playfulness. Yeah, yeah. Um, you answered half of this question, but are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Yes. Yes. I'm a human. Um, and I've, I've got a tender heart myself, so I can be very, um, extroverted, but I'm also really tender. Um, so I laugh with session. I laugh with my clients probably in almost every session. I think humor well, humor is one of my coping skills, and I just think it's a good way of discharging stress. So it helps mm -hmm. us to stay in like the window of tolerance. If emotions are getting too heightened, we can sort of right. play with that a little. Um, I would say that I probably don't cry often with my clients. It it has to be something. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. There are times that I have been moved to tears or been very touched. Um, but there's something for me that I really think my job is to hold space for tears, not to join in them. And like I said, sometimes I'm human and I'm just moved beyond that, that mm -hmm. line. Uh, but generally I'm probably not, I'm not going to cry with you, but I'm going to be with you in your tears. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Crying is not 
something that I regularly do with my, regularly do with my clients either. It has to be like a something particularly particular to that person, you know, that is striking in that moment. Totally. Um, Doesn't mean I don't want to cry with them. Right. Let's yeah, be real. Yeah. Like it, I what hold back tears. There's times it would be very easy for me to just bust out crying yes. with you. Shit's hard. This past year has been hard. As therapists, we've been going through the pandemic uh, along with our clients. So there's certainly been moments where I have felt moved and could absolutely have cried at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. But um, that to me just feels like that's not my space. I, right. I, I have my own therapist and my own friends and my own people who I cry to and they hold space for me. Yeah. How do you define holding space for someone? think of holding space as really being with someone. I want to capitalize the B and the E, like mm -hmm. being. Um, it means that you are with them in the feelings that they're having, that you can empathize with them. You may have felt these feelings before, um, that you're truly emotionally connected to a moment with someone in their, in whatever they're in, in their pain, in their pleasure, in their joy, in their excitement, um, just really staying with someone through their process, even if it's uncomfortable or different or uh, painful, that it means you just really create a place for them to be. I think of mm -hmm. it as a, as a nest, sort of a metaphorical nest. Like you have a soft place to come land and rest and then you have to go back on home to your own nest, but this is the space that I can hold for you. Yeah, I like that nest because it also like has a, a implication of containment, you know? Yes, yep. It's a circle in my imagination. Yeah. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? I bet my supervisor wants me or my former supervisor wants me to say something super profound right now. And the very first thing that comes to mind is so simple, but it's you're entitled to all of your thoughts and feelings. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most simplistic thing, but I was someone who really struggled with feeling all of my feelings. I, um, did not like feeling feelings that I thought were bad or negative. Um, I thought that I shouldn't feel those feelings. I was shooting all over myself. And so just, messy. <laughs> so messy. <laughs> and she was very steady and just over and over and over. You're entitled to your thoughts and feelings. There's nothing wrong with that. You're entitled to your thoughts and feelings. And that over time got very, very instilled in my brain. And now is something I say probably daily as well. I'm, I think if you asked my clients how they would describe me, that I, I hope also that would be one of the things they would say. <laughs> well, Ani says I can have all of my thoughts and feelings. <laughs> but it's so true. We, yeah. we do. You have the freedom to feel everything. And the more free you are, the more free you continue to get. Right. Right. 
what would you say you've personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, don't take everything so seriously. Like most, most things aren't personal. Um, most people's, yeah, just don't take yourself so seriously. We're all struggling. Every human is struggling to be human. Um, and I don't know. I just, I think struggle is normal. That's the other thing that I feel like I've personally learned. I used to think that I was going to do the therapy and then I was going to arrive and then I was going to be done and I was going to be all perfect and really getting rid of that bullshit idea of perfectionism. And just, I've learned that I'm, I am messy and I am organized. I am smart and I am still learning. Um, I've learned a lot more to sort of live in the gray play in the gray that everything doesn't have to be so rigidly black and white and that has been very hard learned yes Mm -hmm. absolutely what do you do to take care of yourself i like to sleep i get nap (laughs) i like walks and moving my body um i am very much a like i like the elements i use the elements in nature to help hold me to help hold the collective and so that's i use nature and the elements as ways to take care of myself so water is a big tool for me whether that's a shower or a bath at the end of the day very much and visualize or envision the water washing things off um i like to get into pools and hot tubs um our our bodies really absorb a lot as therapists and I know fellow therapists know that, but I don't know if if other folks know how hard our work is on our body. So also just making sure I'm getting time outside walking. I like having fires in the backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, I really recharge. I'm introverted in that way. I recharge through solitude and um, nature and pets Mm. and naps. I'm right there with you with all those things. (laughs) Um. How would you define happiness? I want to ask the, the dictionary. Um, this is an funny answer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would actually like the dictionary's answer anyway. <laughs> I think happiness is about being at peace with yourself. That if you can accept who you are uh, and accept the body you have, and the brain you have, and the past that you have, that that brings true joy. I think we spend so much time um, either denying things about ourselves or trying to fix things about ourselves um, or waiting for the future when things finally settle down or arrive or, you know, whatever. We wait for things to be in place or to fall in place and be perfect. And I really think happiness is just about trusting yourself and your process, letting go of a lot of the societal bullshit and trappings and just pursuing your, pursue your passions, pursue what, what fills you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hug lots of babies and children and puppies if you like them. <laughs> that also yeah. is happiness for me. I, I would agree. say kitties, but I'm allergic to them. Me too. It's so unfortunate because they're so cute. <laughs> they're so damn cute. I want the little kittens in my hand. I know. Um, here's a little bit of a vulnerable question. 
Well, the next two are a little bit vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? <laughs> I, I love, love this question. question. <laughs> yes, because I have a I have what feels like a good one. But um, I once had a, a new client come in for just those initial like two or three uh, intake sessions that I was talking about. So we didn't have a, an ongoing full on relationship yet. We were still in the process. And um, I had to have a surgery and I had some minor complications after the surgery and was in the hospital for a few days longer. And um, (laughs) so I had the normal weekday staff, but then the weekend staff came because I was there longer than I was supposed to be. And the next nurse that came in was that, that new client that I had been that I'd had a few sessions with and I'm just in horrible shape, you know, like, I've had surgery. I'm having these complications. Like my belly's bloated. Like it was just, a, I just felt like crap and I was a mess. And it's, you know, like I didn't feel my most competent self. And yeah. um, I was sort of hopeful, like, well, maybe she won't know because I just don't really look great, you know, whatever. No, no. She goes, oh, hey, I think, are you my therapist? I think you're my therapist. And I just <laughs> wanted to sort of die for a moment. And then I also don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this because it's a tough one. HIPAA and there were people in the room and right. and it has to do with your own health care. Yes. Yeah, that's a tricky situation. It was. It was, yes. It was tricky, it was complicated, and it was embarrassing. <laughs> I ended up, I, I said, oh, yeah, huh? you know, kind of tried to, like, I wasn't, I don't know, I didn't want, know what to do. I didn't want to reveal her information, but she revealed yeah. her information. It was complicated. Um, but I did ask the the charge nurse on on, uh, on duty if, if she could have someone else placed with me, and I... I don't know how that how that was that that client never came back to see me. (laughs) I don't know what that was like for them. We never got to process it. (laughs) I hate when that happens. I know. And I could understand it, too. It probably was weird on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. What a what an interesting situation. The situation happening like that had never occurred to me. But right. Hadn't occurred to me either. Um, so regarding therapy, are you in therapy yourself or have you ever been in therapy? Oh God. Yes, absolutely. I think therapists should absolutely be in their own therapy. Um, I I have been in therapy for years. Um, and I, I just will continue. It's to me, it's just a, a place that is so sacred that for me, I need the relationship I have with my therapist is, Um, just been so powerful and transformative and they hold space for me and have been through lots of messes with me. And I just feel so held and loved. I can't imagine um, not having that space just because life is hard and humaning be hard sometimes. (laughs) Even therapists need therapists. Oh God. Yes. Therapists especially should have therapists. (laughs) Especially. And I love being a therapist for other therapists. Mm -hmm. I just find that is so rewarding um, because we, we have some similar working knowledges already. um, And most of the time we're pretty invested in our own health. And I I really do love working with other therapists. Fun stuff. Um, Was there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and your practice or specialties? Mm -hmm. 
in a sort of clear form, I want folks to know that I'm a, um, a sex and gender trauma therapist. That's kind of how to summarize these various interests that I have. And no, I don't think there's anything else. I feel like I've covered a lot. Yeah, no, we talked, we, we covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> I'm a chatter. <laughs> well, Ani, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for agreeing to this and uh, chatting with me. Absolutely, Noah. It's been so much fun. Thank you for listening to NextQuest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. In honor of Valentine's Day, next week's episode will feature Sean Sparks, licensed professional counselor who will be speaking about his practice in an area of specialty, poly, kink, and fetish relationships. NextQuest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.